the new 27-inch iMac is here, and I've got so many first impressions to share. So if you're just itching to decide if you should order one now, 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 and you want answers, you want the truth, well, it's literally my job to give you all the truth you can handle. Sponsored by Skillshare. For more on the Mac and the Apple Silicon ones to come, hit that subscribe bell and button right now. The 2020 27-inch iMac looks like an iMac. It has the exact same design as the previous model and all previous models going all the way back to 2014 when Apple introduced the first 5K iMac and a similar, more metallic design and wider going back all the way to the OG Chinana stand that was the iMac G5. And to be clear, this was all totally expected with new Apple Silicon Macs on the way, pairing the new characteristics with the new designs those characteristics make possible make something else as well. Just the kind of sense that does. Just like it makes sense to let the now classic Mac silicon architecture get one last hurrah on the now classic Mac all-in-one design. A solid slab of glass with a bead-blasted aluminum chin cleft by an Apple logo, perched on a ridiculously thin piece of angled metal. And don't get me wrong, I can't wait for what's next, but Apple finishing up on what's now is just perfect. The iMac already had a phenomenal display, Retina density and P3 gamut, which means everything looks crisp, rich, and deep. Now, with the 2020 refresh, it's layering on two more pretty big improvements. The first is True Tone. That's Apple's dynamic color matching technology. It debuted with a 9.7-inch iPad Pro back in 2016, and it works pretty much the same way now that it worked then. You've got multi-channel sensors that determine how much fluorescent versus incandescent versus sunlight is around you, and then adjust the display so whites don't look too warm and too yellow or too cool and too blue, just well-balanced, like white, paper white. This is the biggest display Apple has ever implemented True Tone on, and it seems to work well enough. Of course, if you're in a studio setting with perfect light and you're doing precise color editing on photos or video, by all means, turn it off. You did already. Saw you. But otherwise, just leave it on and enjoy. The second is a nano-textured glass. That's Apple's new glare reduction technology. It debuted last year on the Pro Display XDR. And the way it works is kind of cool. Instead of adding a matte coating to the glass that scatters light to diffuse it, which reduces glare but also contrast, Apple's etching a nanostructure into the glass itself. That lowers reflectivity while preserving more of the contrast. Now, it absolutely does increase the price tag by 500 bucks US. And it does require you to be a bit more careful about how hard and how often you clean it. Basically, use the cloth that comes with it or a microfiber cloth and use water or a display cleaner. And don't be shy, just don't be a belt sander. It's not XDR or extreme dynamic range, like the Pro Display, but that costs as much as a well-decked-out iMac all by itself. It is EDR, or extended dynamic range. And what that means is, basically, it doesn't have the same sustained or peak brightness levels that HDR requires, high dynamic range, but the color detail, just everything about the way it looks, is so much better than any panel like this has any right to. For photos, video, games, just anything with this color quality, at this size, with this pixel density, at this viewing distance, just want to fall into this world and live inside it. And if you're curious, yeah, there is still no target display mode. And I know, that sucks. 
But long story short, Apple had to work around Intel's lack of support for 5K displays. And they did that by building a custom timing controller to prevent things like pixel tearing right down the middle. And that's still what they use in the iMac today. And that's always why it still can't pretend to be a regular display for target display. Remember when Tim Cook announced that the Mac was being transitioned to Apple Silicon back in June at WWDC? And remember how right after that, he mentioned that Apple would still be releasing new Intel Macs? Well, this new 27-inch iMac is one of those new Intel Macs. It's been updated to 10th generation Comet Lake CPUs. But now, real talk. Comet Lake is still on Intel's 14 nanometer process. Try as they might, or might not, turns out silicon drama is every bit as hilarious as YouTube drama, so you decide you, they haven't been able to bring those desktop chips down to their 10 nanometer process, which is closer to the seven nanometer TSMC process Apple's currently using for all the A series in the iPhone and iPad, much less down to the seven nanometer process, which they've just delayed again, even as Apple and TSMC get ready to go onto their similar five nanometer process. And yet, they don't use matching numbers for their process marketing because did I mention silicon drama? So to make up for the lack of process shrink again, Intel is throwing cores at us again to increase performance again. In this case, six, eight and 10 cores, all hyper-threaded for the new iMac. And yeah, 10 cores in a consumer iMac. Can the iMac chassis that was designed for Intel actually meeting their die shrink goals handle more cores on those same unshrunk dies? Well. Intel will tell you that they only guarantee base frequencies now, and any turbo boost you get is gonna ramp down hard as temperatures ramp up. So if you have a lot of what they call bursty-based workloads, like launching apps and opening web browsers, you'll get better bursts of speed. But if you're doing anything sustained, you might just wanna go with cooler, slower cores. Could Apple have gone with AMD here to get better performance in a smaller package at a lower cost? Potentially, but not practically. It's super easy. Barely an inconvenience to just say things like, should have used AMD on the internet. But Apple has a long-term partnership with Intel measured in volumes of purchases, deep integrations of engineering resources, software and silicon features, and it's the end of the line for x86 anyway. So IRL, in terms of resources and product, it makes zero sense to switch right before a switch. So Intel. And while there's not much improvement core for core between ninth and 10th generation, the ability to have those extra cores can make a significant difference for any workload that is able to exploit them, which includes music and video production, 3D rendering, software building, scientific modeling, and more. For graphics on the newly updated iMac, Apple's gone with the AMD Radeon Pro 5000 series. It's built on AMD's RDNA architecture and fabricated on TSMC's seven nanometer process, same as Apple's A-series chips in the current iPhones and iPads. And yeah, it's not NVIDIA, no matter how much some people want them some big CUDA cores, because NVIDIA and Apple are currently still at cross purposes, at loggerheads. See. NVIDIA wants to commoditize computers, so it doesn't matter what box runs those CUDA cores. Only the NVIDIA part matters. Apple though, Apple wants to abstract away the silicon, so it doesn't matter which GPU is running beneath their metal frameworks on the Mac, only the Mac matters. And it's hard to see that changing anytime in the near future, especially with the Mac moving to Apple GPUs along with the rest of its silicon. Now, AMD has been focusing their attention and budget on CPUs for the last little while, but recently they've been shifting gears towards making their GPUs just way better. And these are the beginnings of that. Apple claims up to 55% improvement. That's for Cinema 4D. 
50% for the Unity fly-through demo, specific to my interests, up to 30% faster timeline rendering in Final Cut Pro. Here's what I got for an export, because that, to me, is the real metric that matters. Synthetic benchmarks are fun to watch, sure, but how long it takes for me to get a specific piece of work done and how much faster a new machine makes that, literally time to output, that's everything. Apple's T2 chip is new to the regular iMac, but not the Mac in general. The iMac Pro has even had one since 2017. Why did it take so long for it to come to the regular iMac? If I had to guess, T2 has an SSD controller built right in, but until now, some iMacs still had HDDs. So, yeah. And if you're not familiar with T2, it's basically a variant of the A10 Fusion from the iPhone 7. Apple calls it a security chip because it handles secure boot and real-time encryption on the Mac, as well as Touch ID on the MacBooks. But it's really a full-on coprocessor that also handles everything from system controllers to accelerators, everything from the image signal processor for the camera to the audio signal processor for the speakers to always-on processing for voice-activated Siri to H.265 encode and decode blocks to the performance controller that figures out just how to dispatch all of that. It's probably not marketed as a coprocessor because Intel, but it's what makes Apple to non-Apple comparisons so often bananas. It's really hard for anyone outside in a Nantech style institution, and maybe even inside, to truly measure what's hitting CPU versus custom accelerator blocks, and why a Mac with the same set of specs as a PC can achieve very different performance levels, especially when you're using software like Final Cut Pro 10 that's aware and optimized specifically for that. And yeah, that's totally a tease for what full-on Apple Silicon Macs could be like. And I covered all of that in a previous video, link in the description. We now live in a world where the 13-inch MacBook Pro maxes out at 32 gigabytes of RAM, the 16-inch at 64 gigabytes, and the 27-inch iMac, as of right now, at 128 gigabytes. Yeah, 128 gigabytes in a non-Pro iMac. It still starts at 8 gigabytes, which is too low for me. Even though macOS does a good job at memory compression and the custom storage controller is so fast it can effectively smoke and mirrors swap as memory, I'd still recommend 16 gigabytes for most people. But since the memory in the 27-inch iMac remains user accessible and upgradable, you can certainly start with eight gigabytes from Apple and then source your own higher capacity sticks if and when you need them. Apple has also gone entirely SSD, solid state, across a 27-inch iMac lineup with up to 3.4 gigabytes per second sequential read and write speeds. You can start with 256 gigabytes if you only really want an internal boot volume and plan to hang all of your main storage externally on the back. But you can also go all the way up to eight terabytes now as well, which is absolutely terrific if you do want to store at least your primary working media on your internal drive. I recommend between one and two terabytes for most people because it gives you space you may well need and it's easy to find even fast external drives to back that up or to clone. And for that external storage or for any other peripherals you want, the iMac has kept all the same ports, just not all in the same way. There are four USB-A for your old school connects, two USB-C slash Thunderbolt 3 for your latest and greatest, and that includes the ability now to add up to two Pro Display XDRs if the mood and budget strikes you. A couple of those ports, though, have been upgraded. The SDXC card slot is now USH2, so it's faster. And I appreciate it still being there, unlike the MacBook Pro, even though I've since moved on to CFast Express. Type B on Canon, not Type A like Sony, because the card world is just terrible and we will never know a compatible or dongle-free life. 
You can also now upgrade the gigabit ethernet to 10 gigabit ethernet as well. Bluetooth is 5.0 and Wi-Fi remains at 5 or 802.11ac. And it looks like Apple will just never go to Wi-Fi 6 on Intel Silicon, which given some of the other issues with Wi-Fi 6 probably works out just fine in terms of timing anyway. You get the same Apple Magic Keyboard and Magic Mouse with this new iMac as you've gotten with the last many generations of iMac. You can choose whether you want it with a numeric keypad or with a Magic Trackpad instead, or just go for both. I stick with the trackpad because I personally, subjectively, just vastly prefer the trackpad. The Magic Mouse is still in need of a complete redesign, so charging it isn't ridiculous. And so you can run it while connected if you have any radio issues or just happen to prefer it that way. Same as you've always been able to do with the trackpad and keyboard. And yeah, there's still no Touch ID on the Magic Keyboard. And that probably has nothing to do with Apple not being able to secure a remote Touch ID. You've been able to authenticate on the Mac using Touch ID iPhones for years. It probably has way more to do with the cost of putting Touch ID tech into the keyboard. And I think that's why, practically, Face ID on future iMacs just makes a ton more sense, since it'll let Apple Silicon just handle all of that, all in one SOC, all inside the computer. I saved the best for last. Instead of a tiny potato of a webcam, the new 27-inch iMac comes with a full-on 1080p webcam. The sensor is back illuminated instead of front illuminated, so the hardware just by itself is much better. And thanks to the T2 chip and its iPhone 7 level image signal processor, you get really good computational video as well. The bits are just way better than the atoms, with face detection, white balance, tonal mapping, and more. The end result looks better than the $200 Logitech 4K Brio I've been using these last many months. I don't want to belabor the point, but way more people are working from home and stuck on just endless WebEx and Zoom calls these days. And so webcams on Macs matter more than they ever had before. And I really hope this is the start of a trend and that Apple isn't just taking Mac cameras as seriously as they've begun taking Mac speakers and mics. And more on that in a hot take minute. But as seriously as they've taken iPhone and iPad cameras going on a decade now, everyone deserves to be a first-class camera citizen. Speaking of the speakers, they're also leaning on the T2 chip for better audio. Basically, variable EQ, so sound sounds better, no matter if you're turning the volume down or way up. Sadly, there's no new speaker hardware like there is in the 16-inch MacBook Pro, though I hope that's a trend that continues as well, because those are, in my opinion, currently the high bar. They also don't have spatial audio like the MacBooks Pro, but because the iMac is much wider, they do have a pretty good amount of separation all by themselves. Now, Apple is claiming the mics are studio quality, like the 16-inch MacBook Pro, which means about USB mic level. There are two mics in the chin and one mic on the back for noise cancellation, and they work pretty great. For 1080p camera, this looks, it's computational. It looks good. It looks good. And I'm using the microphone too. Wait, you're using a microphone? You're using a microphone right now? Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I didn't even know that. Wow. Okay. Now, They are nowhere like the XLR mics I typically use and the high-end interfaces I have them plugged into. But again, they are way better than any iMac previously had any ability to produce. Here's my full video and audio run of modern Macs with some iOS devices thrown in for comparison and this new iMac stacked at the beginning and end. This is a new 27-inch iMac 1080p camera and microphone. This is the camera and microphone on the 2016 12-inch MacBook. This is the microphone and camera on the 2017 15-inch MacBook Pro. This is the 2019 16-inch MacBook Pro camera and microphone. 
This is a 2017 iMac Pro camera and microphone. This is a Logitech 920 1080p camera and microphone. This is a Logitech 4K Brio camera and microphone. This is a 2020 MacBook Air microphone and camera. This is a 2019 10.2 inch iPad front facing camera and microphone. This is the 2020 12.9 inch iPad Pro front facing camera and microphone. This is the 2019 iPhone 11 front facing camera and microphone. This is the 2020 13 inch MacBook Pro camera and microphone. This is a new 27 inch iMac 1080p camera and microphone. So yeah, progress. But with Apple Silicon Macs on the way and presumably an Apple Silicon iMac one day, at least in a year or two, it's perfectly fair to ask who should even or who would even buy an Intel iMac today? And I think there are four answers to that, some distinct, some overlapping. One, if you want or need the ability to run Intel Windows on bootcamp or via virtual machine, you're going to want and need an Intel Mac. Two, if you use specific high-end production software that barely supports Intel Mac as it is and worry it will take some time between long and never for that support to come to Apple Silicon, you're going to need an Intel Mac for the foreseeable future. Three, if you hate the idea of buying Reve boards, and by that I mean first-generation products, and you'd prefer to wait and see how they perform for others, what issues and trade-offs there may be, then you're going to want to stick with what you know works, and that's the Intel Mac for now. And four, if you just need a new iMac now, 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 and really don't care what kind of silicon is inside as long as you have it, and it does work right now. All of those are perfectly valid reasons for getting an Intel Mac, even now, today, and exactly the reason Apple is releasing it now, this week. So there's a latest, greatest Intel iMac for everyone who does want and need it. So you can have it and use it, and it will last for you as long as possible until you're willing and able to take that next big generational leap. Now, like I said up top, all this was just to explain the product decisions Apple put into the new iMacs and what I think about them. I'll be back with a full review in a week or two, so make sure you drop any more questions or requests into the comments so I can address as many of them as inhumanly possible. Then, while I get to work for you, sit tight and enjoy some really great coffee, the kind you can only really get once Michael Phillips, director of training at Blue Bottles, shows you what it takes to brew some of it right at home, right in his Skillshare class, and right where all of us can watch it at home, where we need it the most, not Dunkin', not Timmy's, not Starbucks, just real coffee, really good coffee. I'm going to drink some now and then check out Ali Abdal's class on video editing with Final Cut Pro 10 from beginner to YouTuber, because that's the thing about Skillshare. You can watch and learn as much as you want about pretty much anything you want. It's an online learning community that offers membership with meaning, with classes that explore illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, and more, with real projects to create and the support of real fellow creatives. Skillshare is designed to move your creative journey forward, even when everything else in our lives makes them feel like they're on hold. And you can learn and grow with short classes that fit your busy routine at your own pace and affordably with an annual subscription that's less than $10 a month. Join more than 7 million creators learning on Skillshare. And the first 1,000 of you who click on the link in the description will get two months of Skillshare Premium for free. Act now and start learning today. And clicking on that link... It just really helps out this channel. Thanks, Skillshare, and thanks to all of you for your support. Check out my Mac playlist above, and see you next video.